Let's turn our attention to uh, Scripture now. Now hear a reading from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Then Jesus and his disciples went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? They said, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Then he warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke openly about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But after turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Then Jesus called the crowd along with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and because of the gospel will save it. For what benefit is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit his life? What can a person give in exchange for his life? For if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word. Lord, thank you for loving us so much that you would speak individually to us, that you would use this passage that uh, stands out among many as one of the central and most significant passages in Scripture, uh, that you've used it over and over again to lead and guide your people in being faithful to you. And at the same time, you're using it individually in each one of our lives to challenge and encourage us to be faithful to you. Lord, we need your help with that. We can't do it on our own. So please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, Presumably, this is a familiar passage to you. This is really the climactic turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Mark's been building up to this. It's at this point that the story will turn its attention toward Jerusalem. Jesus makes his way there. The tone and tenor of the way Mark writes changes after this moment when Peter acknowledges that you are the Christ to Jesus. And before we bring this passage to bear on our lives in Littleton and Metro Littleton, I want to acknowledge that this passage is incredibly important, especially 
for persecuted believers. That's the first group of people that Mark wrote the gospel for. He was writing to early Christians being persecuted in Rome. And imagine if you are facing death every day or imprisonment every day for your faith, how deeply encouraging this is. We read it and we're challenged by it. They read it and are encouraged by it. More than we can imagine, persecuted believers back then and all over the world today are obeying Jesus' words in this passage. And his promises to them are giving them life and assuring their glory. So pray for them and pray to be like them. In Littleton, however, we need the challenge that Peter needed. I wasn't able to bring Peter back to speak this morning. He has a very busy speaking schedule, but he was grateful to be with us a few weeks ago. Here's the challenge that Peter needed. Knowing who Jesus is is a very different thing than following him. That's the basic thing I want you to hear today. Knowing who Jesus is and following him are two different things. Please, please know who he is. Please. He is, as Peter says, the Christ. That's the main thing we need to know about him. That means he's the Messiah. He's the king. And the kingdom comes with him. That's who he is. Where he is, there is his kingdom. He's therefore the restorer of God's people. More than that, he's the restorer of the world. He brings peace and perfect order. So Peter's proclamation that you are the Christ, it's right. And it's the turning point. Jesus has been demonstrating his Christ's-ness for all the chapters, all of the stories up to this point in Mark. The hungry are fed, the oppressed are set free, the lame are healed, the deaf hear, the blind see. His disciples saw some of that and asked in the boat after he calmed the storm, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they couldn't answer yet, not until now. Peter's answer is right, but we immediately learn that what he understands about Jesus being the Christ is way too small. Peter is waiting for a small Messiah. He's waiting for a Joshua who will help them conquer the promised land again. He's waiting for a Moses who will set them free from Egypt again. He's waiting for a David who will drive out the Philistines, for a Josiah who will restore worship, a Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. These are all small messiahs. They're small messiahs. Peter doesn't yet realize the nuclear power of this word, Christ the Christ is the one Adam and Eve needed. The moment they felt their naked shame, they needed the Christ. The Christ is the one Cain needed when he was in danger after killing his brother Abel. The Christ is the one Noah needed to keep his family out of the rain. 
The Christ is the one Isaac needed in order to escape his father's sacrificial knife. The Christ is the one Hagar needed when she wandered alone into the wilderness with her baby son waiting to die. He's the one that people longed for when they asked for a king. And Jesus gives us a hint right here in this passage. Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus starts talking about himself as the son of man, the one Daniel saw in the vision when he sees all of the beastly kings and emperors of the world lining up one after another. And then the son of man comes and defeats them all. That's who the Christ is. Every high and low of the Bible story and of our own lives are completed by the Christ. So know who he is, please. Say who he is like Peter. Say it to one another. Say it to him. Answer the question for yourself. Who do you say that I am? Every day we need to grow in what we mean by it and how we understand it. That longing that you feel for intimacy, it's the Christ. That longing you feel for purpose, here he is to give it to you. This is who he is. But knowing who he is doesn't transform us. A couple decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, his brother, James, had become a believer. And James wrote a letter to the believers who were drifting in their faith. They knew who he was, but they weren't following him. And James says, you believe that God is one? Referring to Jesus and the Father being united? Good. But even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Jesus gives us a strong warning if we're not following him. The Son of Man, when he comes in his glory, will be ashamed. That's terrifying to me. We have to follow him, not just know him. Follow him to the mountaintop, yeah. Follow him to admiration and enjoyment of the Father and intimacy with the Father. Yeah, we do that. Follow him in times of peace and in times of prayer and in times of love with our families. Yeah, follow him into the restoration of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah, he, he, that's all part of following him. But first, we follow him into death. Did you hear his words? The Son of Man must suffer. And that explodes Peter and the other guys' understanding of what Jesus was coming to do. It, it's not a matter of preference. Jesus isn't saying the Son of Man is going to choose to suffer. He must suffer. Okay, Tim Keller explains it this way. Why must he? Why must he suffer? When someone robs you, this is Tim Keller, when someone robs you of an opportunity or takes something away that you'll never get back, that creates a sense of debt. Justice has been violated and that person owes you. Once you sense that debt, there are only two things you can do. 
one thing you can do is to try to make that person pay. Destroy their opportunities. Hope they suffer. Actually see to their suffering. The alternative, the other thing you can do, is to forgive. But there's nothing easy about real forgiveness. When you want to harbor vengeful thoughts, when you want to carry out vengeful actions, but, re but you refuse them in an effort to forgive, it hurts. When you refrain, it's agony. Why? Instead of making the other person pay, you are absorbing the cost yourself. The only way God can pardon us and not judge us is to absorb the cost himself. The Son of Man must suffer. And he must suffer at official hands, not just let himself get mugged or step in front of a fast-moving chariot, all right? That, he's not just going to throw his life away. It must be the official representatives of God's own people, the elders, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin. He must let them reject him and execute him. He must absorb the cost from the primary representatives who have incurred the price. And he's calling his disciples to follow him. It's not enough to know who Jesus is if we're not willing to follow him. No, this doesn't sound like free grace, but this is the way Jesus describes it. You can know who Jesus is just enough to see him as a golden opportunity for yourself. That's what actually what Peter was doing here. Peter saw Jesus as a golden opportunity. You're the anointed king, and we're your guys. In fact, I'm the spokesperson for your guys. I am going to be your general. I'm going to be your advisor. I'm going to be the one who tells you what to do. Peter was sure he was acting in everyone's best interests, including Jesus, when he corrected him. Jesus, if you're the Christ, you've got to act like it. You've got to do what a Christ would do. You've got to lead us to victory. No king accepts the crown and then immediately hands it back and surrenders. You're the Christ and I'm your guy. My glory depends on you. Peter's zeal for Jesus is mixed with ambition. He knows his well-being is linked to Jesus' performance. Lord, you cannot mess this up. Let me explain with the story that blows my mind. Um, presumably, you all know who LeBron James is, the biggest star in professional basketball. Uh, the people who know about LeBron who have, or uh, who knew about him early on, everyone in the basketball world knew about him as a teenager. In fact, when he's 15 and 16, everyone is saying, this guy is going to be the greatest player of his generation. They already knew. And at that point, he was too young for professional teams to start recruiting him, but companies could recruit him. 
And so he was getting tours, especially of shoe companies. They wanted to be the shoe brand that represented LeBron James. And so there's these wild stories of LeBron and his mom, you know, low-income family. They're already being treated well because he's so good at basketball. But but um, they're getting these, they're getting like wined and dined at different shoe companies. So one story, he goes to Adidas, and he's at the Adidas headquarters, and they show him all the sites and show him videos, and they're showing him, you know, this is what your signature sneaker could be like in the clothing line and all of this. And so they do the whole song and dance, and then the CEO brings LeBron and his mom into his office. And he walks them over to his desk, and he gets out a checkbook, and they watch as he writes them a $10 million check. He says, look, this isn't part of the deal, this isn't part of the contract, but if you verbally agree right now that you'll sign with Adidas, this is yours. No strings attached. Why was a shoe company willing to sort of skim $10 million off their books just to have the promise of this guy with them? Because they believed, correctly in this case, that he would rule the sporting world for the next generation. And that millions upon millions of people would buy the clothing brands that he is wearing just because he's wearing it. LeBron and his mom walked away from the deal with Adidas. They didn't take the check. They signed an undisclosed lifetime deal with Nike. We have no idea how much it's worth, but it's a lot, more than $10 million. But you better believe that that deal with Nike has conditions. You better believe it. If you don't believe me, consider other major athletes. Consider Tiger Woods after his serial infidelity came to light. His sponsorships disappeared overnight. Consider Lance Armstrong after he confessed to cheating in the bike races. Not only did his sponsors drop him, they sued him to get the money back. There were strings attached to that. That's how Americans do followership. We will happily ride someone's coattails as long as they are leading us where we want to go. As long as they are. Every pastor I know has seen committed people leave their congregations because they weren't leading them where they thought they should. We've lived through that too. Don't get me wrong. It is generally wise to follow only those who deserve to be followed. That is, that is wise. I'm not telling you to sign a lifetime deal with Littleton Christian Church, even if me and Stephen and the elders go crazy. All right, I'm not, not telling you to do that. I want you to be discerning about which church you attend, which books you read, who you vote for, where you work, which schools you send your kids to, and on and on. Just please don't treat Jesus like that. Please don't. If Jesus is the Christ, we cannot follow him only when he's leading us where we want. That's not actually following. He is not the Christ because Peter acknowledged it. He's not the Christ because we chose him to be the Christ. He's not the Christ because there was a popular vote taken and the people crowned him by majority opinion. Christ means anointed one, and it's not us who anointed him. 
God has chosen him to be the king, and he did not consult Mike Wright, and he did not consult you. There were no polls taken, no market research conducted, no alternative candidates to consider. In a society like ours where we choose all of our leaders, we really don't know what we're saying when we say, with Peter, you're the Christ. That's why we must constantly work to know and understand that more. Even Peter, who didn't have nearly the kind of options that we enjoy as normal, did not realize what he was saying. Even Peter was letting his own pride alter the way he understood his claim that Jesus is the Christ. John Calvin says it so profoundly. He says, so deeply is pride rooted in the hearts of men that they think wrong is done them and complain if God does not comply with everything they consider to be right. That's what happened for Peter. If I'm the king, Jesus says, follow me no matter what, even to death. Okay, so what does that mean for us, little Tonians? What does that mean for us? There's no cross. You could be the biggest jerk Christian that this city has ever seen, and no one's going to execute you for it. Not officially, anyway. There, there's no literal cross for us to take up. There's no literal threat of execution for those who follow Jesus. Social awkwardness is not a cross to bear. It's not a cross. Emotional discomfort is not a cross. For that matter, the challenges that we face in our life, the real and painful challenges, whether it's an unreasonable boss or cancer or the long, slow death of a loved one, those are not crosses to bear. They are real and painful. They build perseverance, love, endurance. They're opportunities to serve, but they're not crosses. We make a mistake when we attach every hard thing to a cross. They are, for sure, opportunities for us to deny ourselves. But they're not crosses. I'm not sure we can equate much obedience in our lives to a cross. But this surely means that Jesus intends to lead us places that we wouldn't naturally choose to go. Lead us to do things and spend in certain ways and not spend in other ways and, and uh, be alongside certain people and not other people and make those choices that we wouldn't naturally choose to do. That's part of it. We take blame that we didn't deserve. We avoid recognition for things that we could easily get it for. That's all part of it. In 2021, here in South Denver, the most helpful language that I can offer you about deny yourself and take up your cross is, surprise, surprise, the language of addictions. The moment you identify something as standing between you and loving God or loving people fully, and yet you continue to do that thing, guess what? You've identified an addiction in your life. It doesn't matter whether it is heroin or watching a few extra episodes of that show each day. Whether it's 
running up too much debt on your credit card, or drinking yourself unconscious every night. All of those fit in the category of things that can stand between us and the love of God and people. There's so many examples. Is your devotion to your kids' activities helping you and them love God and people as freely and fully as possible or standing in the way? Is, is your constant need to capture every memory with a photograph helping you to love God and people or getting in the way? Is your behavior on social media helping you to love God and people or, or standing between? Every single one of us clings to things, knowingly or not, that are keeping us from following Jesus fully keeping us from loving others with reckless abandon. It may be just our desire for safety and reputation. It may be marijuana. It may be whatever. When Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me, the first thing he is talking to you about is that thing. That's the first thing he's talking to you about. So if you have identified it, Share it with someone and run away from it. Deny yourself. Quitting that addiction is denying yourself, even if that addiction is actually hurting you. This is not about just choosing suffering no matter what. Your brain is telling you that you need that thing. In fact, we were learning about brain chemistry this week. Your brain is telling you you need it and that you should panic if you don't get it. You, your brain has taught itself to do that, even if that thing is killing you. But Jesus' command doesn't just stop with denying ourselves. We take up our cross and follow. This means we absorb wrongs into ourselves. Jesus did that completely and perfectly, including any wrong that you are being called to absorb into yourself. But somehow the followers of Jesus understood that we got to be part of that with Jesus. When Paul describes all the incredible suffering that he goes through, he says he is completing in his body the suffering of Christ. That's wild to think about, but that's the privilege that we have. We can do this only because he has done it. You, you want to know what that means in real life, like in the heart, the rubber on the road, real life? Well, ask an addict who's walking through sobriety from their addiction. Every 12-step program is actually a process of humiliation and then confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. You've admitted that you can't do anything about it and that you need, that you need God's help and that you need to trust him in the journey out in the first three steps. There's still nine more, and they're all about dealing with those deep emotional wounds that we're actually medicating with whatever the thing was before. In fact, if you talk to addiction experts, they'll tell you about people who have achieved sobriety from the thing, but haven't done the work underneath. In the alcohol world, that person is called a dry drunk. Have you heard that term, a dry drunk? 
That person's not consuming any alcohol, but they haven't dealt with any of the junk that alcohol was numbing. All of that, all of those um, uh, resentments and unforgivenesses, all of that pain that they're still putting out there on other people. That's a dry drunk. They've denied themselves, but they're not following him because that work is hard and painful. So many people in the 12 steps bail in step four and five when you're making a fearless and searching inventory of your life and then making amends with others. That is taking up your cross and following him. At least the closest we can come in this culture. Most of the time, we just don't choose to do that. We just don't. Jesus said he must suffer, and that's what he did. And we hear these words, and we try to figure out, like, what does this mean for us in Littleton? I wrestled hard with this this week. Like, what does this really mean? We're so used to this passage. But what is it really? How do we really do it? We re- like, oh, it's a metaphor for something. Well, for these guys that Jesus was talking to, it wasn't a metaphor. They watched people get crucified on crosses by the Romans, often. It wasn't a metaphor for them. Jesus is saying, this is how the Roman Empire is going to respond to us, to this movement. And they're like, what? You're telling? And guess what? When Jesus does take up his cross, none of them followed him. None of them did. They got this instruction and none of them did. The closest any of them came was Peter and Peter was embarrassed and he denied being connected to Jesus later. So we have to recognize, hi kids, come back in quietly, my child. Find your parents. We have to recognize that even as Jesus is saying this, he is choosing, he must suffer even for the guys that he's talking to. That shame that he's talking about the Son of Man experience, he is going to absorb even that into himself. Father, why have you forsaken me? To take it into himself. And after he did that, after he absorbed even all of the cost that we had incurred, on him. It transformed all of them. He rose again from the dead. These guys saw life in a whole new way. And just just months later, you have Peter, the same one who denied him, who, who argued with Jesus on the scene. You have Peter getting publicly tortured for following Jesus on the temple courts. And as Peter leaves, he is praising God that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name. We need Jesus to do it for us before we can ever consider doing it for ourselves. That's what he offers to us. That's the promise he gives us at the table. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for your love, your grace. And thank you, Lord, that because you have absorbed every time I've been embarrassed of you into yourself, that I'm free again to deny myself, 
and take up a cross and follow you. Help us to do that, Lord. As we come to this table and receive your grace, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.